Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello, my name's Anna Ridley. Today on the Penguin Podcast, we have an episode all about death, but it's not as gloomy as you might think, or at least not all of it. Firstly, we brought together David Shields and John Gray, two authors who had never met before, but who seemed to us to have a lot in common, and whose most recent books both dwell on the subject of mortality. David Shields is an American novelist and manifesto maker, whose reality hunger was an outspoken argument for a new kind of writing, a writing that samples and appropriates reality, other art, and anything else it can get its hands on. And his new book, The Thing About Life Is That One Day You'll Be Dead, does just that. It's a family portrait, a meditation on mortality, an act of self-disclosure, and a piece of cultural criticism. Philosopher John Gray has risen to prominence as one of the most arresting and unique thinkers alive today, with books like Straw Dogs and Black Mass. Andrew Marr described him as the closest thing we have to a window-smashing French intellectual, and we're inclined to agree, though he didn't actually smash any windows when he visited. His most recent book is The Immortalisation Commission, The Strange Quest to Cheat Death. David and John sat down to talk in the Penguin offices. So I'll just start somewhere odd, John, and that is that one thing I'm sort of interested in is that you and I are both very aware of the absurdity of existence, and yet both of us seem like they were very productive writers. We want, you know, we're very wedded to writing books. It seems a little bit ironic, that, or, or even contradictory, that, that you and I very much want to affirm the absurdity of existence, and yet we're extremely sort of workaholic in our... I was wondering if you could play with that a little bit. There is certainly... I think there's a genuine paradox there, meaning a core of truth which appears to some extent really is contradictory but when we look at it from when it's looked at from another point of view it isn't truly contradictory it, it is paradoxical but not truly contradictory I mean when in your book uh, you emphasize the absurdity of existence it's by way of a contrast with views of human life from religion and other sources right. which gloss over or even deny the fact, what you and I, David, both take to be just the fact that we are frail mortal animals. And so by emphasising that, as we both do, and as we both, I would say, have to do if we're to communicate in a culture permeated by religious and post-religious assumptions and ways of thinking, by stressing that, it seems as if, like Cameron some other writers, that were emphasising the absurdity of life. But I would say, certainly in, in my case, and I think at least my interpretation would also be in your case, it doesn't, by absurdity, it doesn't thereby carry with it this, the idea of futility. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, human life is futile if you think it can only have meaning if it goes on forever. Or Right. But uh, if you surrender, like if you relinquish that uh, relic I would say, of religion and certain types of idealistic philosophy, if you relinquish that idea, then um, it doesn't 
need to be absurd in that way at all, because we we can still have many we can still have meaningful attachments. Uh, we can have um, uh, productive work. And I would even go further actually that and say that a sense of urgency is generated right by the not just the fact that our that we will die, but it's ultimate loss, right. the loss of everything. So one could respond to that by being paralyzed in a sense and therefore saying, you know, why get up in the morning? And right. Um, and I'm afraid sometimes I sort of, when, when I'm doing events and people say, well, if I agreed with you, um, I wouldn't get up in the morning. I uh, sometimes say, well, stay in bed longer. <laughs> <laughs> you might find another reason for Right, getting up because one can have an, uh, the, the the other response one might have is to say life is short we should therefore be very as careful and as lucid as we can and as thoughtful as we can be in working out what we really want to do with it mm-hmm. and then think, do it I think that's I think it's one of the I mean I don't want to flatter you or flatter my own work but I think it's one of the paradoxes of each of our most recent books is that even though the each book dwells rather mercilessly on yes. mortality. Many people have said to me, and I don't know if people are saying to you, that the book, at least my book, is oddly giddy or even sort of surreptitiously joyous, that there's a, a tremendous call to live our life now in this very unvarnished way. Yes, and <clears throat> that's all of that's true. And... Um, surreptitiously joyous is a wonderful way of describing <laughs> your book. I mean, and what one or two people said about this recent book of mine and about earlier books of mine is that they're liberating in the sense that they lighten the burden of um, unreal hopes that people mm-hmm. try and live by. Mm-hmm. And if you put them on one side, you mm-hmm. can then be nimbler and um, more resilient in dealing with life, not by pursuing some idea of immortality or some uh, false uh, uh, vision of immortality, whether in the almost science fiction terms of having oneself frozen or being mm-hmm. uploaded into cyberspace, mm-hmm. as Ray Kurzweil has later yeah. argued, or even in the banal humanist sense of hoping that one's memory lives on at others. I wanted to ask you, I mean, in what sense is the fiction of immortality, because it has many, many different forms, but in what sense do you think it, it is harmful? Because there, some fictions... I mean, we use a fiction of, of, sorry, of immortality. Of immortality. How is it harmful? Well, in its variety. I mean, obviously, it's a variety. great question. I mean, obviously, a huge one is mm. the religious aspect mm. in which people put off their lives mm. for some mm-hmm. heavenly reward mm-hmm. later on. Seems to me just. Uh, Don't you think secular people do that too? For say children, say putting off like sort yeah. of living vicariously through their or children. Political. Projects uh-huh. which put off one generation's happiness uh-huh. for the sake of the next one. Well, that's something I'm struck by with your work, mm. how hard you push back against politics solving life. I mean, yeah. you are so usefully skeptical Thank of you. that. And I, I, I grew up with very, very politically engaged parents, you know, very super-duper left-wing parents. Uh-huh. You know, and I, although I am or was sort of sympathetic to their political goals, this idea that somehow politics was going to solve your soul, I just don't have no. that. It ain't, no. it ain't gonna happen. No. And I, I really, I, can, I wonder, if, does your work get a lot of 
blowback, I would think, from people who would think if you took your work seriously, mm. it would be very hard to make any political gesture because I mm. think you tend to look completely askance at that. I do. I you mean, know, I, yeah. I, and it, it sort of riles a lot yeah, of people. I can imagine. Not on any one part of the political spectrum. Right, <laughs> right. Because, um, but from most of the, or all, almost of the political spectrum, because um, what I would say, you see, telling stories about a radiant future um, is dangerous for many reasons, ranging from the most extreme, which is what played out in the Soviet Union, whereby a whole generation is sacrificed for the sake of a future generation's happiness, which turns Political out to be completely fiction, illusory. Right. And which, by the way, though, even if it was true, I would still resist. Why should one generation perish for the next mm -hmm. one? But uh, the, And I think that yeah. your point is that the political fiction is virtually synonymous with the religious fiction. I think yes, you're, yes. you're awfully good about yeah. cross-wiring those. Yes. What, see, do you feel any um, sort of family resemblance between sort of yourself, say, and people like, say, Richard Dawkins? Or no. is, is it, do you no. feel any Not connection? I mean, see, <clears throat> no. I mean, uh, I sort of, it's quite an antagonistic view. For one, now, you might not share this, David, but it's interesting. See, I don't have any religious beliefs and I don't practice any religion. And uh, there are certain freedoms I think are important which are still denied by religious freedom, like the freedom to die when you want to die, mm -hmm. and be helped by others and so on. Mm -hmm. However, unlike Dawkins, and there are many evils connected with religions and so on, but however, unlike Dawkins, I treat religion as, I view religion as part of the natural history of the human animal. In other words, there's a general kind of view, which is that if you're a naturalist, if you're a Darwinian, if you treat humans as frail uh, animals, come about as other animals have by, by chance and have no special destiny and so on, that you'll be opposed to religion. Now, of course, it's true that you won't share any religious beliefs, but that's to assume that belief is the heart of religion. What you would do, what, what I would say is actually I would be inherently actually a, a friendly towards religion because it's it's that's a, a way in which um, humans um, find or you might say create uh, meaning in their lives and it's pretty near ubiquitous you see it's a sort of odd kind of humanism the, the Dawkins Hitchens humanism which is so hostile to a universal human need mm -hmm. it's like saying I'm a humanist but people shouldn't fall in love you know mm -hmm. or they shouldn't grieve when mm -hmm. their, their loved ones die or they or, you know, or they shouldn't. And the idea, I mean, I've, you know... I've, I've you mean, there's a kind of yeah. um, badgering going on on, say, Hitchens or Dawkins' part. And I think some people mm. accuse me a little bit of that, vis-a-vis -vis reality hunt, like on yeah. the BBC show that we did yesterday that we were talking, and Sheila was saying, you know, I was trying to get her on my side, sort of, and saying, well, what you're arguing about watercolors is what I'm arguing about contemporary literature that I'm very interested in, in work that has as thin a membrane as possible mm -hmm. between art and life. Mm -hmm. And she's saying, yes, but unlike you, 
I'm not saying that watercolors is the only way that one can do it. I'm just saying that that we need to pay more attention mm-hmm. to watercolors. And I thought that she made a good point, which was that that for some reason I'm very much on a sort of high horse about this. That I mm-hmm. think there's huge immersion or huge investment in a kind of quaint 19th century novel as the literary form in which yes. we we talk yes. about this is a huge idea that if one is thought to be a, a good writer or the writer of their generation that they are a fiction writer mm-hmm. and often a fiction writer of to me staggeringly old-fashioned yes technique and it's terribly important to me for for who knows what complicated reasons to really argue against that so is it partly that our <clears throat> lives are not novels that's a lot of it. You know, I, I really think the they way... They don't work out like novels. They don't, they don't exactly. have the structure of novels. They, they're not like novels at all, in fact. Those are four of my key points, is that, you know, that the, the glacial pace of novels bears no relationship to contemporary life and contemporary consciousness. That the enormous value that most novels place on setting mm-hmm. bears no relationship to how little place in, has come to matter for many people living in Western capitalist democracy. Mm. The sort of Freudian understanding of, of character is not taking into account what we know about human action through cognitive science and through genetics. Mm. And above all, as you said, the coherence of plot is almost applying, almost implying a godlike presence mm. who is trying to orchestrate everything. Whereas in the, we are in the middle of it. Yeah. But anyway, I'm I'm terribly interested in nonfiction mm-hmm. that uses the form to question the very premises of nonfiction. That instead of using nonfiction as this idea that somehow it's telling it's a truth, it's actually is using nonfiction to question things like what is truth? What is knowledge? I think, in one sense, my book does that because I agree. you're because endlessly. Because well, 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 it is nonfiction in the sense right. that the events it describes and reports really did happen, and I didn't want to have any footnotes or endnotes. I thought I'd left them behind me with delight once I left academic life. Right. But some of the events in it are so extraordinary, almost mm-hmm. incredible. I had to put in thirty pages of uh, citations and references and so on. But I mean, I. The, the, the narratives, the stories, and even to some extent the characters that I uh, describe and their interactions with one another and their histories and predicaments are used to undermine various conventional distinctions such that, for example, we, we really know what the past was like. We have a very um, carefully edited view of the past. To say the least, yeah. yeah. And edited not only by our own unconscious and Freudian and other needs, but also by a kind of, by a narrative of progress, by a narrative, I would say, of almost increasing respectability. We look back and we see these, um, we look back, for example, we see Darwin. Mm -hmm. We see Darwin is a tremendous iconoclast. Actually, he was extremely cautious. Sure. We've forgotten about uh, Alfred Russell Wallace. I know. Who who basically... Who did, maybe even before Darwin. Now, Darwin, who's a tremendous 
perfectly decent person. Right. He always acknowledged this. Sure. Publicly and privately. Right. Um, but um, we've forgotten about Wallace, who was genuinely iconoclastic, mm-hmm. and as a result, was forgotten. I know. Uh, who converted to spiritualism for some of the reasons, you know, that contemporary, some contemporary people have theories of intelligent design and so forth. Well, he was an early... The co-discoverer of natural selection right. converted to spiritualism and other, uh, and other causes. Um, a different example is we think of the Bolsheviks as being tremendous sort of rationalists, essentially liberals but more consistent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you go into it a bit, you find Lenin certainly was not enamoured of and in fact always intensely hostile to anything like Bolsheviks becoming a new religion. He sort of stuck to that. But people like um, Lunacharsky, who was the first commissar of enlightenment, was a former disciple of Madame Blavatsky. Really? I didn't know that. A theosophist. I forgot if you mentioned that in the book. book, book, That's right. And um, this strand within Bolshevism, uh, the so-called God-building strand, Mm -hmm. said God is the future humanity. Mm -hmm. And they had these crackpot ideas. Gorky himself took them quite seriously. Um, God-building writer, new letter, new Stalin, and so forth. Um, that humans would eventually conquer death by becoming pure energy, pure thought. To a conversation I recorded in the book, given in, in his journal, Gorky's diary, with the poet Rushbrook Alexander Bloch, in which he says to Bloch, you know, you won't need these bodies, you know, maybe quite soon we can dispense with just become pure thought and block says oh what a depressing idea I agree completely what a horrible <laughs> idea he says fortunately it's impossible so we didn't worry about it mm-hmm. um, uh, so they all they had these absolutely crackpot ideas whereas now we've sanitized history by removing from it um, large sections of myths occultism mysticism uh, and madness mm-hmm. whereas actually those are the things that actually moved large parts of history sure. got, got them got, got them going and so I was using these this, this genre of non-fiction in a sense to subvert or at least question um, the uh, um, view we have of the non-fictional past mm-hmm. the actual past is much weirder of and wilder and stranger and madder and more interesting mm-hmm. I would say and to me, more fascinating. In some ways, it's more horrible, but in other ways, it's more uh, mm-hmm. creative and, and, uh, and compelling than the one we we continually construct, I the agree. respectable past. You know, people write about history almost like a, a very successful, respectable man or woman would like their obituaries to be I written. Know, so Everything left out, which is I of any interest. You know, I thought, I don't know, I would tend... I know I tend to view when someone writes this much-admired biography of, say, Winston Churchill or yeah. Thomas Jefferson. I, to me, it's comical how people take it as if it were the some kind of truth. Yeah. I mean, it's an absolute fiction. Yes. And, uh, but one can have, in a sense, more truthful fictions, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you would make it a stick where somehow slightly... I mean, obviously there are degrees yeah. of some facts, one... One thing I wanted to swing around because mm-hmm. something you said triggered this for me. That finally the the line that in a way my book, the thing about life is that one day you'll be dead, mm-hmm. drives for throughout the book. The father is this 
95-year-old Tyro, and the son, me, mm. is sort of a 50-year-old kind of melancholy baby. And in the, in the course of the book, the two kind of change positions, finally, which is the father starts to show some wear and tear of mortality. Mm. And I start to sort of find my groove. I kind of start loving life more. And the line I finally drive toward, which in a way is kind of the core of the book for me, is that at, toward the very end, I say something like, life is simple, tragic, and spookily beautiful. Mm. And I was wondering, would you, would you, would you quarrel with, with any of that? No, no, I wouldn't. Um, I'd say the only thing I would add is it's it's comic, but not in the sense of being unserious. Uh huh. That's nice. I mean, talk yeah. about that, like, because I agree that yeah, comic in what precise sense for you? Well, I guess comedy can be a very um, liberating thing in the sense that it releases us from the I think a kind of human need, which is rather tyrannical, which is to fight to seek and find not too much meaning. Mm-hmm. in our lives if our lives empty of meaning then because we're listless and, mm-hmm. but meaning if, if meaning were really ubiquitous as it is in certain kinds of religion theism for example mm-hmm. it's all meaning everywhere jam-packed with meaning mm-hmm. um, uh, I think that would be dreadful mm-hmm. <laughs> I think a world which was like a sort of a reverse paranoia sort reverse, of everything makes exactly, sense you've got it Every, everything mm-hmm. everything not maliciously but even the most terrible thing have some role in mm-hmm. um, one of the philosophers I most enjoy and admire is William James, and he. I was going to sort of connect you to the American pragmatist yeah. tradition. Do you yeah. find some James especially James especially James especially <laughs> more than Dewey or yeah much more. Uh-huh. Much oh, more. So James simply writes so much better. Beautiful, He's a beautiful, beautiful writer. Beautiful writer. Also, he was uh, you know he wrote. I think I'm almost inclined to say the only, but I can't really be true. It's certainly the best book ever written by a philosopher on religion. I variety. Variety. I love. Me I too. love that. Book. Absolutely adore that. I book. think it's the better, the best book that any James wrote. I mean, <laughs> I prefer yeah. William to Henry yeah. by far. I mean, yeah. I think varieties of religious. By the way, on, on on comedy, but truth, you know, when Henry James died, he continued to dictate from beyond the grave. His secretary, his oh, stenographer, had still had claimed to be receiving uh-huh. texts that's from uh, so uh, from um, from the af from the, from the af. Like, it's, it's a wonderful book that, and one which contains still Bridie's religious experience. Wittgenstein admired it hugely. Interesting. Uh, contains so much from which we can learn. Oh, it's such a beautiful, wonderful, book. wonderful book. So I think so. It goes back to your point about absurdity. Um, absurdity. There's a certain kind of aspect of absurdity which is released in comedy, mm-hmm. in comedy, and not meaning by that making, not taking everything lightly, right, or frivolously, but in not trying to prettify it or give it more meaning than it ultimately has mm-hmm. or can have. There is a wonderful line by uh, John Barth that I like. He says, "Everything is." significant but nothing is meaningful i feel like that's a good way mm. to live your life and it's maybe not a bad way to gather some of the threads that we've been spinning here which is you know that everything is really interesting everything signifies you know everything vibrates but to me nothing is 
you know, in any absolute or final sense, meaningful. I would endorse that fully and put it in the context of what I say in the book, which is that a lot of the people in the book, whether they're classified themselves or are classified by others as scientists or as occultists or mm-hmm. as religious thinkers mm-hmm. or whatever, um, are seeking a hidden order in things, a hidden... Right. It's as if the world was a code mm-hmm. or a text written in invisible ink. And if right. you... If you alert yourself and discipline yourself and acquire rare or even paranormal skills, you can read the text and mm-hmm. find the meaning. Now, I think that is a harmful fiction. Sure. That idea. Because that project, because... And not actually, not because there is no such meaning. In my view, there isn't. Right. But that's not the reason. The reason is you're distracted from the greater and lesser significances and meanings that mm-hmm. come up in your life because you're constantly looking askance and looking for this text behind them all, mm-hmm. as it were. Right. So whenever you find a meaning, you would say, well, I just sort of glimpsed half a sentence in, yeah. <laughs> in the book of the world or something. Right. And I think that's... Uh, but lots and lots of people mm-hmm. have dedicated their lives, their whole lives, sometimes tragic lives, sometimes you know, um, uh, pitiable lives, as it were, to, um, to that to that notion and so actually you've you've picked up what you know some a very important feature of the book which is i'm it's really kind of one of the one of the impulses which is which caused me to write the book is to um uh undermine or subvert or at least kind of um plant a, a question mark of doubt above that whole idea of the world as a as an invisible text If you were wondering which BBC programme David mentioned, it was Start the Week, and Sheila Hancock was the other guest who was keeping him in his place. Alaskan writer David Van is the author of two works of fiction, Legend of a Suicide, which was heralded as an American classic upon publication in 2009, and his new novel Caribou Island, which we published earlier this year. We caught up with David on his last visit to the UK to ask him about the role of death in his work. My first work of fiction, Legend of Suicide, is arranged entirely around a death. My father's suicide when I was 13, and the book explores who he was and what happened and what that event meant and what it meant to all of us afterward, including the shame and rage and guilt and and all of that. Um, but it's been transformed in the fiction, and it, it's something that happened over a long period of about 10 years, um, a lot of thinking about his death. My new novel, Caribou Island, has a death right in the first paragraph. Irene, the main character, is remembering back 45 years to when she was 10 years old and walked in and found her mother hanging from the rafters. And this is based on a true story of my family, uh, my grandmother, who lost her mother to suicide, to hanging and has another true story of family death in the background of the murder-suicide of my stepmother's parents. Uh, So we've had a lot of death in my family and a lot of suicide, and my fiction is definitely powered by those true stories in the background. They've been transformed in the fiction, and what was ugliest in the family history becomes something else that could even be lovely at times and more emotionally distanced, um, but always powered in the background emotionally and psychologically by those deaths. One of the characters in Legend of a Suicide says, Absurdity is all that makes grief bearable. 
And I was really surprised in writing Caribou Island how much humor there was in the book. I hadn't expected to write that. I, I thought I was focusing on this marriage between Irene and Gary, a marriage going wrong in the wilderness. And it's pretty tense, and there's, there's a lot of dramatic conflict between them. But in the alternating chapters, with all these other characters and their points of view, there are a lot of light moments uh, that, are, that I found really funny as I, as I was going through. And, and I was surprised by these characters. And, and I, I found that that was necessary as a, as a relief every other chapter to give us a break from Gary and Irene and, and their problems. I'm David Van, and I'm reading from Caribou Island, my new novel. This is Irene, the main character, and it's her vision of death toward the end of the book. Irene lay alone in her tent, a quieter night than usual, no wind, and she tried to imagine what it would be like in winter. Not so hard to do, really, after living at the edge of this lake so many years. As she walked out onto it, she'd find fault lines in the snow, a thin dusting, faint ridges raised up where the ice had cracked, no other footsteps, no tracks of any kind, Irene the only figure on a broad pan of white. Early winter, the temperature minus 15. The mountains would be white, the lake and glacier. Only the sky a new color, rare winter sun, rare midwinter blue. The sun above the peaks moving sideways, unable to rise any higher. Irene would carry her bow, her footsteps the only sound. The world prehistoric, wind shifting the snow like sand, small dunes and hollows, the water close beneath. Irene imagined herself not properly dressed for the cold for some reason, wearing what she had worn inside the cabin, finished now, a blue sweater, thin down vest, wool pants and boots, a knit cap, white and gray, no gloves. Her hand holding the bow was cold. She walked toward the glacier, toward the mountains, away from the island, walked slowly, then stopped and looked around. Without her footsteps, no sound, no wind, no moving water, no bird, no other human. This bright world, the sound of her heart, the sound of her own breath, the sound of her own blood in her temples, those were all she would hear. If she could make those stop, she could hear the world. The water beneath her was moving, and that must make a sound, a dark current beneath ice, no surface to break, no ripples, but even that must make a sound deep water, layers and currents, and when one layer moved over another, something must hear that, some tearing of water against water. And over time, the changes in those currents, the shifts, the lake never the same from moment to moment, all of that must be recorded somehow. Irene could imagine herself continuing on over the thin crust, holding the bow in her left hand, letting the other hand warm in her pocket, continuing over light dunes of snow, pausing in an area of large flakes, the size of fingernails, individual snowflakes, their branches visible, lying at angles, razor thin. They looked ornamental, contrived, too large and individual to be real. She squatted down for a closer look, touched a flake, then wiped her hand across the surface, revealing the black of the lake, the color of ice over the depths, a vacuum of light, and no way to peer into it, the surface clear, but so dark as to be essentially opaque. The cold would press in, not dressed for this, not prepared, her legs and back cold, she'd be shivering soon, <clears throat> the sun so bright and without any warmth. Gary, she said, and she stopped, this big lake, so flat, only the small drifts of snow. She looked at the far shorelines, turned a slow circle, tried to see it all at once, the immensity of it. 
and then she would walk toward the nearest shoreline, wanting the cover of trees, the distances deceiving, elongating, at the edge of the lake, ruptures and monuments of ice, their peaks covered in snow, mountains of another scale. She stepped over a ridge, a giantess, slick ice beneath her boots, and then rock, large pebbles, the beach. Into the trees quickly, home of winter birds, spruce grouse and willow ptarmigan, white-tailed ptarmigan. She'd seen small flocks of redpole feed in temperatures colder than this. No trail here. She stepped over deadfall, pushed through bare patches of alder, grown thick, food for ptarmigan, into the taller white trunks of birch, the evergreen Sitka spruce, tall and thin with branches bent at odd angles. Irene looked for signs of life, saw and heard nothing, her footsteps cracking, the forest non-concealing, open to the sky, too bare, too stunted to cover, wallow and swale, the flats and hollows, pushing again through denser growth, right into a devil's club, spiny knob rising out of the forest as high as her shoulder. She cried out, her left hand impaled with spines, twisted cane with its knobby head, thick with spines, and now she saw there were many more here, a thicket, so she had to backtrack, go around the wallow, find higher ground again. She would find a stand of white birch, easier going, more space between trunks, make good progress, the snow not too deep. Arise, finally, the flank of the mountain, dragging the bow behind her, the cold air heavy in her lungs. As she came over a small hill, she could see the mountain above, white above the tree line, rumpled and old. She'd climb until she reached the top, many miles, and she'd never done this in winter, but it didn't seem difficult now. It seemed almost as if she could be carried upward, as if she could float above the ground. Only the bow was holding her back, weighing her down, so she let it drop from her hand, didn't watch it fall, didn't look back, climbed faster, a new urgency, pulling at small branches with her hands. Irene felt dizzy, lightheaded, the climbing a kind of trance, watching the snow in front of her, always perfect, small hollows around every trunk, everything contoured, the world traced and made softer. To finish up this episode, we have Paul Murray reading from his aptly titled second novel, Skippy Dies. Longlisted for the Booker Prize and shortlisted for the Costa Novel of the Year Award, Skippy Dies is an epic, tragic, comic, brilliant novel set in and around Dublin's Seabrook College for Boys. Principally concerning the lives, loves, mistakes and triumphs of overweight maths whiz Ruprecht Van Doren, and his roommate Daniel Skippy Jester. It also features a frisbee-throwing siren, the joys and horrors of first love, the use and blatant misuse of prescription medication, as well as various attempts to unravel string theory. While at the same time, Murray expertly explores the very deepest mysteries of the human heart. Here's Paul. Hi, my name is Paul Murray, and I am the author of Skippy Dies. Skippy and Ruprecht are having a donut-eating race one evening when Skippy turns purple and falls off his chair. It is a Friday in November and Ed's is only half full. If Skippy makes a noise as he topples to the floor, no one pays any attention. Nor is Ruprecht at first overly concerned. Rather, he is pleased because it means that he, Ruprecht, has won the race, his 16th in a row, bringing him one step closer to the all-time record held by Guido the Gland La Manche, Seabrook College, class of 93. Apart from being a genius, which he is, Ruprecht does not have all that much going for him. A hamster-cheeked boy with a chronic weight problem, he is bad at sports and most other facets of life not involving complicated mathematical equations. 
That is why he savours his donut-eating victory so, and why, even though Skippy has been on the floor for almost a minute now, Ruprecht is still sitting there in his chair, chuckling to himself and saying exultantly under his breath, Yes, yes, until the table jolts and his coat goes flying and he realises that something is wrong. On the checkered tiles beneath the table, Skippy is writhing in silence. What's the matter? Ruprecht says, but gets no answer. Skippy's eyes are bulging and a strange sepulchral wheezing issues from his mouth. Ruprecht loosens his tie and unbuttons his collar, but that doesn't seem to help. In fact, the breathing, the writhing, the pop-eyed stare only get worse, and Ruprecht feels a prickling climb up the back of his neck. What's wrong, he repeats, raising his voice as if Skippy were on the other side of a busy motorway. Everyone is looking now, the long table of Seabrook fourth years and their girlfriends, the two St. Bridget's girls, one fat, one thin, both still in their uniforms, the trio of shelf stackers from the shopping mall up the road. They turn and watch as Skippy gasps and dry heaves, for all the world as if he's drowning. Though how could he be drowning here, Ruprecht thinks, indoors with the sea way over on the other side of the park. It doesn't make any sense, and it's all happening too quickly without giving him time to work out what to do. At that moment, a door opens and a young man in an Ed's shirt and a badge on which is written in mock cursive, Hi, I'm, and then in an almost unreadable scroll, Zhang Zilin, emerges from behind the counter, carrying a tray and change. Confronted by the crowd, which has risen to its feet to get a better view, he halts. Then he spies the body on the floor, and dropping the tray, vaults over the counter, pushes Ruprecht aside, and prizes open Skippy's mouth. He peers in, but it's too dark to see anything, so hoisting him to his feet, he fastens his arm around Skippy's midriff and begins to yank at his stomach. Ruprecht's brain, meanwhile, has sparked into life. He's scrabbling through the donuts on the floor, thinking that if he can find out which donut Skippy is choking on, it might provide some sort of key to the situation. As he casts about, though, he makes a startling discovery. Of the six donuts that were in Skippy's box at the start of the race, six still remain, none with so much as a bite gun. His mind churns. He hadn't been observing Skippy during the race. Ruprecht, when eating competitively, tends to enter a sort of a zone in which the rest of the world melts away into nothingness. This, in fact, is the secret of his record-nearing 16 victories. But he'd assumed Skippy was eating too. After all, why would you enter a donut-eating race and not eat any donuts? And more importantly, if he hasn't eaten anything, how can he be... Wait, he exclaims, jumping up and waving his hand at Zhang. Wait! Zhang Zilin looks at him, panting, Skippy lolling over his forearms like a sack of wheat. He hasn't eaten anything, Ruprecht says. He isn't choking. And that's it for this episode. For more information about the authors and books featured, please visit our website at thepenguinpodcast.co.uk and to get in touch with us, our email address is podcast at penguin.co.uk and we're on Twitter as at Penguin Podcast. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Penguin Podcast.